and welcome to the Starting Eleven podcast. I'm your host, Chengiz Khan, and with me today is Peter Robson for a very, very special episode of the Starting Eleven podcast. As you know, we here have a deep, deep love for Toronto FC. We're big supporters of local football. And with us today is a man who was instrumental in bringing Toronto FC to life, the 63rd Mayor of Toronto, David Miller. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Chengiz and uh, Peter, thanks so much for having me uh, on and keep up the great work. We need, we need more informed debate about soccer. In fact, we probably need more uninformed debate about soccer. But uh, <laughs> your podcast is, is terrific and I'm really pleased to have a chance to, to talk. That is very, very high praise. Thank you so much for saying that. I think we, we all sort of, sort of got together to start this podcast to really for the reasons you said, really, just to boost the presence of Toronto FC fan culture and fan uh, debate and conversation. So you having us, you ha- being on here helps not only increase the, the, the quality of the debate, but also helps to legitimize all of it as well, because there have been so many different podcasts over the years, but not a, a lot of them have managed to stay on and get esteemed guests such as yourself. So just before we get into it, um, we do have an international audience and we do have a lot of people who listen in from all over the world. You don't need any introduction to Toronto FC fans, but for our international fans, please tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into politics who, and what you mean to Toronto FC and who you are in re- respect to Toronto FC. Uh, sure. Well, I'll try to give uh, uh, the short version being a recovering politician. I'm a often accused of uh, going on a bit, but um, I'm uh, originally from England, uh, hence my love uh, for soccer. I grew up in a small uh, farming village outside Cambridge. My family is from Ipswich, so I am a strong supporter of Ipswich Town. Remember 1978? Um, Boo to Norwich. Shocking that Norwich has been allowed to rise to the top (laughs) of uh, the championship this year. It is just the championship, Um, though. Oh, jest. Uh, Ipswich got relegated. Right. It's, it's a high achievement these days, sadly. Um, so I, I came to Canada as a boy. Um, we lived uh, in Ottawa. Um, and I moved to Toronto as an adult to, to go to law school. My law career took me into contact with the city government. I wasn't very impressed with what I saw, so I ran uh, for city council. I uh, was elected in 1994. Uh, after three terms, ran for mayor, mostly on uh, an argument that the city um, was uh, not working for everybody. It was sort of a matter of uh, who you knew, not what you know. There were some very significant corruption scandals that uh, I and former councillor Ann Johnson and some others were involved in exposing. And it, it you know, spoke to the heart of what I believe about public service and government. I really believe government's there to help all of us live of course. better and richer lives. And on that platform, became mayor in 2003, served two terms. And during that time, uh, had to step in and make sure that the stadium would be built. Otherwise, we would not have uh, Toronto FC and we wouldn't have hosted uh, the under-20 Men's World Cup in uh, right. 2007. So that's that's the short version. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so let's de- delve deeper into that that initial uh, d- involvement with Toronto FC, that investment in getting the stadium uh, completed. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the history behind that and and what sort of motivated you to to get involved with that. 
Well, a couple of things um, that were really important from my perspective. I mean, first of all, I, I, you know, I have a bias. I, I can't remember not having a football at my feet from the, you know, my earliest days, literally as soon as I could walk mm. like most uh, English boys in the 1960s. Um, I played football. Right. So, and I, I played in, into university. Uh, I ended up actually during university, I was uh, a bet, relatively better rugby player than, than soccer player. So, I uh, uh, played more rugby than soccer, but I did play one year of university level soccer. And it's been a lifelong passion. So, that, that sort of background. And what happened was. Oh, and the, I guess the other background is, particularly for people who aren't from Toronto, we're an incredibly diverse international city. The majority of people who live in this city are immigrants, like yes. I am, uh, somewhere around 60%. And, you know, soccer is a common language for most people from most countries Absolutely. in the world. So. Mm-hmm. In around 2005, 2006, you guys might have the exact uh, dates, um, the federal government and the Canadian Soccer Association uh, wanted to bring the World Under-20 World Cup to Canada and needed a showpiece stadium that was built to an appropriate size and appropriate FIFA standards in order to host uh, the semifinals and final. And they wanted to have that in Toronto and make it the, the – home of uh, the Canadian Soccer Association. So the federal government agreed to fund and build what they call Canada's National Soccer Stadium. Mm -hmm. Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, who own the Toronto Maple Leaf hockey team and the Raptors basketball team, wanted to bring a a soccer club. So they participated. So did the Toronto Argonauts Canadian football team, league team at the time. And they came up with an agreement to build a stadium at the University of Toronto where Varsity Stadium is. they didn't speak to the city and we would have given them some advice about how difficult that might be. And it turned out that because U of T, the colleges are independent, the ones all adjacent to the proposed stadium voted against it. And so they couldn't build there. So they tried to build at York university that failed. They tried to build at Downsview that failed. The Argos left. So by FIFA's deadline, the Canadian Soccer Association was left with some money from the federal government, some money from the provincial government, money from Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, uh, no money from uh, the Argos because they'd left, um, and no place to put a stadium. So they called my office and said, can you help? Because we're going to lose the the World Cup unless we have Mm -hmm. a stadium. And that's when we stepped in and secured Exhibition Place and put a little bit of money in um and uh that's how the stadium got built and i i thought it was really important to this city not just for the international exposure but for the reason i said we're we're a city that welcomes people from every country in the world soccer is a universal sport it's a way to bring people together and we really should have the best professional league in north america right here in in toronto and that's that's what 100 percent. and it's important to have sort of a, a landmark a dedicated landmark that people can come in and recognize and say this is where soccer football is played in Canada, rather than, you know, doubling over like they do in New York, where, you know, they use Yankee Stadium and then you have uh, certain other teams around the MLS using various different uh, American football stadiums. And and without that kind of landmark, without that sort of, well, I don't want to call it a church or a cathedral, but the, the similar, um, similar words are used to describe stadiums in England and in Europe, where it does feel like a, a very uh, religious experience going to it. Um, 
and BMO Field is has developed into this wonderful, beautiful stadium now. And can't believe we're actually talking to the man who, who was responsible <laughs> for, for, in part, making that happen. You know, the, there's a lot of, uh, when you're successful, there's a lot of authors. I think my role was it was going to fail unless we stepped in with a location and, and some money to, yes, yes. to fill the gap. We struck a pretty hard bargain. The, the bargain was we owned the station or the uh, stadium. <laughs> we own the station, too. <laughs> uh, we own the, uh, the stadium, the city. And um, uh, the agreement was that Toronto Maple Leaf uh, Sports and Entertainment would run the stadium, but if there was a loss, they had to cover the loss. But if there was a profit, we split half. So we, you know, we struck a hard bargain. But you know, from the city perspective, it was blindingly obvious for the reasons you said that we need a place to play soccer football, not a stadium that's for another sport and repurposed. Soccer needed its home, and that's what BMO's been since it opened. Yeah. I know uh, from from my past of watching Toronto FC, going to the Rogers Center and watching a, a match, it didn't have the same the same atmosphere, didn't have the same sort of feel as when it was at BMO Field. So I always felt like you know B, BMO is special. Um, and sorry, David, why was it so important for BMO to be soccer specific as opposed to you know kind of what you were saying where it's kind of been repurposed or um, how do you feel about the Argos playing there now? I think it was very short-sighted. You know, the the Argos are a great institution. The Canadian Football League's a great institution. Growing up in Ottawa, you know, I grew up at the time. The Rough Riders were were superb with Russ Jackson and and Ronnie Stewart and Vic Washington and some other lots of other players. Um, uh, so I believe in the Canadian Football League, but they should have their own place. And what it matters for a whole bunch of reasons. One is you that what the gift of Toronto FC is the supporters' culture. And Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, the federal government, the provincial government, the city, none of us created that. The fans created that, and it is fantastic. And that culture is associated with a place, and it's their place, BMO. Secondly, you know, to accommodate different sports, stadiums are always inadequate. Um, look at what's happened to West Ham. Yeah. You know, the, the stands are a big distance from the pitch. And we even see this now that the Argos have come in at BMO. You know, we have a superb pitch, but the North End stands have been changed dramatically and they've put artificial turf in there to accommodate the Canadian Football League because the, the pitch is a different dimension. And I just think it's really short-sighted. You, you build something that's superb uh, for the sport, make it specific. The final point for me is we're in a global competition for players and I don't think the Javinkos of the world are going to come here unless we have first-class facilities, including an amazing pitch and a stadium where they feel that bond with the stands, with the, the fans in the stands. It's really important to, to maintain that kind of uh, physical connection. And the, all the great players who've come through in the past few years all comment on that. So I, it's, it's really important for all of those reasons. Yeah, I think everybody, they, they'd want to make sure that whatever company they're joining – it, it has a healthy workplace, has all, a very well-equipped workplace to allow them to do the best job that they can. And in the case of athletes, you do need those facilities. Like you're saying, you do need a world-class pitch. And uh, in your opinion, do you think the Argos playing there has 
perhaps de- decrease the quality of pitch? Do you think that it's affected it overall, or is it just more of a, the principle of the idea of sharing the stadium with another team that isn't football-related? I think the jury's out on the pitch because we've been exceptionally lucky about the weather the past yes. couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. I, I'm of the view that if we have a big storm, which is very likely, Toronto FC always seems to be played in, in big storms. Um, just before an Argos game, they'll destroy the pitch. It's it's inevitable, and there's a reason that the Canadian Football League went to mostly turf for a right. long time. It's because the nature of the game is they destroy the, the pitch. So my biggest question, David, would be, what's your favorite TFC moment? We know you've been a day one supporter. We know you've had season tickets for years and years and years. What What's your favorite moment? So, you know, I've been privileged to be there for some incredible moments, just incredible um, and from Danny Dicchio all up, but my my favorite, and then some fun, you know, goofy sorts of moments. Uh, Wiedemann scoring in <laughs> extra time in a pouring downpour. Speaking of rain, to beat Columbus yeah. for the first time, right? Yeah. At that time, that was a great achievement. Oh, we beat Columbus. Um, <laughs> The game against Montreal, um, in which we we came back to win, and Nick Hag- Hagland scored that header, was just the most incredible, incredible game uh, all through it. The events, and you know, the week before when they were in Montreal, I wasn't able to go up to Montreal, so we watched uh, we watched the game at Shoeless Joe's at uh, Dufferin and King, where the Red Patch Boys hang out. And when it got to be three nil down, it was crushing. And then we came back with those two goals. Yeah. So, so coming here, you know, it was kind of, we, we just didn't know what happened. We go a goal down. The weather's cold. It's miserable. We go down and the fans got louder. Yeah. And, and that feeling, you know, the fans were there for the team. It was just, I think uh, that two-legged series was the best sporting event I've ever been part of. By, by far and I've you know I've been to Jay's World Series games it was and I've been to Stanley Cup playoff games all sorts of things that I've been lucky enough to go to um, and it, it those two games back to back and that game in particular being there at BMO every second of it was was my favorite moment it was it was incredible. one of those moments I wasn't there but I was watching through the TV and it was one of those it was one of those nights where you could just feel it. everybody felt it and you could feel it through the TV and you could feel it in the city. It was just, it was, there was something in the air that just, you know, you, you believed and, and you, the team came out on top and they got the result and it was delirium. It was absolute, it was, it was an absolute statement to say that, you know what, Toronto FC is here to stay. We're not just some team that, that, you know, people can, can walk over and not very to take seriously. We're a real team. We've got real fans. We're authentic and we're from Canada. And it was just, it was, for, I was still early on in my TFC fandom career, as it were. Um, and <laughs> for me, that was the that was the night, that exact night against Columbus that I was like, okay, you know what? I'm in, let's do this. You know, one, one of the things about that, <clears throat> that game, when um, we came back, I guess we ended up winning 5-2, but it was 3-2 to go into extra time. Um, and, the, you know, the reverse fixture in Montreal, remember, they got the lines wrong. They hadn't laid the lines right. Yeah, I was in Montreal for that game. Like, oh, my God, guys, what are you doing? This on national TV in the U.S. Yeah. And, and whoever wins is going to be the first Canadian team 
in the MLS Cup. So, it, like, we couldn't possibly let Montreal be the first team in the MLS Cup. We just couldn't. So for us to come back from being behind after the first leg, being behind uh, in the game, um, and the way we came back, and that Nick Haglin scored that great goal, and you know, it was just, it was all, it was, it was storybook. It was cold. It was miserable, and it didn't matter if you were in the the stands or on TV, Chen guys. But it it was that to me. That's the the most fun I've I've had at that pitch. David, did you throw your seat cushion? For Danny Dicchio, or did you keep it? I wasn't at the Danny Dicchio goal game. I <gasps> oh, no. saw Danny Dicchio score lots of goals, but not uh, that we're one. We're going to need your season tickets, <laughs> oh, no. unfortunately. <laughs> well, I was traveling on you know duties for the, the city of Toronto at the time, so I've got an excuse. I was at their first ever game, but I wasn't, I wasn't at that one. So I only saw it on YouTube. And if you watch that goal on youtube it's the most incredible things it looks like it's snowing seat cushions yeah yeah it is it's amazing um i just want to move it on now to talking about the team as it is right now and this season um you penned that letter not too long ago about the state of the state of the club and what direction it's going what do you feel how do you feel about how the Giovinco saga was handled could have been better, could have been worse. You know, I, I hope like all TFC fans, I adore Giovinco. I think he was the messy of this league. You know, he, I read an article the other day about uh, uh, Barcelona's dismantling of Liverpool last week. And they, sorry, they I, said, I, I don't, I don't, I don't remember that game. For oh. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Whoops. <laughs> but, but it's relevant to Jovinko because they described Messi. They basically said that at some points in the game, Barcelona looked like they were standing around waiting for him to, to do a miracle, and mm. he did. And, you know, <clears throat> I think probably in a way, Jovinko was bad for our team in a certain respect because there was a bit of let's stand around and wait for Jovinko to do a miracle, but he did again and again and again. And I think if you've got a player like that who's you know likely to be the best player in the history of your club, who delivered a, a championship you were so desperate for, um, delivered, you know, when we've gotten the playoffs the first time, that moment could be people's great moment when he flies back from Italy playing for the Italian national team, gets off the plane, <clears throat> comes to the game. I was there, by the way. The roar when he came on just before he scored that incredible goal against the Red Bulls, turning about five guys backwards and on their butts and scored to put us in the playoffs for the first time. Like, he, he's a legend. Mm-hmm. And I really think when you have a legend, you have to find a way. If if you're not going to be able to come to a financial agreement to keep them, uh, I think most people can accept that, although they won't like it. But you've got to find a way to handle it properly. And, and you know, we were all told this year they're keeping all their players. We're going to make one more run at it with the same crew. Everybody's going to stay. And all of a sudden, within about two weeks, we, we lose Victor Vasquez and Tudinko. Right. It, it really look like <clears throat> the management weren't on top of things and and had no idea this was going to happen. So, I mean, with, with well Vasquez, I think there was probably a case to be made that, you know, he was a little bit too old for the squad that they're trying to build, for the vision that they're trying to build for, for TFC. And also he was extremely injury prone too. Um, and then with Juvink with Jovinko, I'm I'm not I'm I'm on the fence about this this whole move because on one hand, yes, he was absolutely you're absolutely right. He was a legend. He gave everything for the shirt, and he was perhaps the number one reason why we even won the championship in the first place. But 
I just I just question how much of it was management, how much of it was for him, because to go from MLS to Saudi Arabia, you know that that, that says a lot about your your motivations as a player. Uh, if it was about playing good football, if it was about uh, winning trophies that matter, then you you probably assume that he'd go to some sort of mid level Italian side or or perhaps a, a, a top end French team or something like that, stay on the continent. But he went to Saudi Arabia, so for me that says a lot to me about Jovinko's character and that he's playing for money at this point. Maybe, um, and I, you know, Vasquez, I'm kind of with you. I think we wouldn't have had him this year anyway because his knee was so bad and his his lower back seemed to be creating problems mm-hmm. too. So I, I didn't <clears throat> wasn't mean to be critical of that move on its own. It's just it happened, then all of a sudden Jovinko's gone, and I I think. You could make the argument that Javinko decided that he'd got one more good contract and he needed to get as, uh, as rich a one as he could to protect his family for the rest of their That's lives, right, yeah. given he's only got one more big contract. But it still could have been handled way better. He's with the team in preseason. All of a sudden, he's gone. You know, you had they, they left it to the last year, and the top, top teams rarely, rarely do that. You know, they only do that if they're going to let you go on a free. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, Javinko and Josie, and for that matter, Michael Bradley, I think should have been dealt with the year before. And if they weren't going to renew it, you know, make that decision and give them a proper last year and let them have a send-off. It, but it wasn't – it just, to me, wasn't handled in to the professional level that one would expect yeah. from what has become a pretty sophisticated club when it wasn't, you know, uh, when it started uh, 12 years ago. You sure wouldn't use the word sophisticated, but they are now. Yeah, they definitely are now. Something that really stood out to me throughout that whole saga was the silence of Greg Vanny. I mean, you'd think the coach would, would, even if it was to dispel rumors or to just get the press uh, under control a little bit, just to stop the rumors from spreading and whatnot, he didn't say anything. And I, I don't know how much of that is management or just Vanny himself not wanting to get involved. Either way, like it's very atypical of a manager to not, not comment on the status of a player when, when there's so much speculation surrounding them. Yeah, I've wondered a wee bit this spring um, if Vanny's 100% happy with how uh, the people he reports to have mm. been doing things like player recruitment. I mean, we go down to Panama and he plays a 4-3-3 with... Uh, you know, a kid just out of college and a high school yeah. kid. Yeah. And we get destroyed by a team that shouldn't be on the pitch with us. I mean, it had two good wingers, and that was kind of, and a 40 year old guy, uh, you know, sort of like putting one of us at center back. Yep. <laughs> and the, um, so, uh, you know, I wondered, so some people were saying he did that to send a message, hey, bring in some wingers. And he keeps saying they're doing. They're trying to do X and Y, and it never happens. So I just wonder, maybe I'm reading too much into it, uh, but I, I, I do wonder a, a wee bit because he spent a lot of effort saying we're going to try to do this, and they're not doing that at all. You know, They're playing uh, one up top most of the time. They're, they're not playing a 4-3-3 at all. They can't. They don't have wingers. Um, and he's spent all winter talking about that. So I, I just kind of wonder a wee bit if he's on the same page as uh, – that's Bill Manning and Ellie Curtis. So when it comes to player recruitment, how do we go forward making MLS and Toronto a destination for, uh, you know, players who could be on the fringe of first team European squads um, or players who are in their prime uh, in lesser, I guess, lesser leagues around the world? 
Well, I think you you fish where you know the fish are. We seem to do very well in Belgium. Yeah, we do. Yeah, so far. <laughs> so I'd, I'd be all in on Belgium all the time. I'm only half saying that in jest. I do think you have to focus. You know, Vanny seems to have some connections in France. Uh, we seem to have done well in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done historically particularly well in Latin America, although we sh- should be able to do really well there. I mean, by global standards, we're not a huge club, so we have to focus. And I whether, you know, maybe they need to shift their focus somewhere else, but they, they need to focus where they can get some reasonable, consistent quality. The, the other thing is, you know, I, I think the leagues, well, I know, the league's set up really to do well. You have to have good domestic talent coming yes, up. Yes, you do. Yeah, definitely. So TFC two and the academy really, really matter. And I, I think the Canadian Professional League might help in that regard. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, you know, Emery Welshman's out there. Ryan Telfer scored the first ever you know, goal. People on first ever goal exactly. And people on the fringes of the club. Um, maybe they'll have the playing time they need to to up their standards so they can get a chance. Uh, yes. Yeah, so- We recently interviewed Ryan Brennan of uh, York 9 FC, the team manager there, Um, and he very much views Canadian Premier League as very separate to sort of like a USL or or like they they don't want to be seen as a feeder series to Toronto FC or to, uh, you know, Vancouver or to Montreal or any of the big MLS clubs for that matter. Um, do you do you feel like that that sort of attitude is a mistake? Should should they be seen as a as a feeder series? Should they be um, looking to take you know fringe players off MLS teams and using that league to develop them? Um, well, <clears throat> I wouldn't second guess anything, uh, unlike what I used to do with TFC. <laughs> I wouldn't second guess uh, the the CPL at the moment. I think they've launched brilliantly, and the crowds they got for the first couple of games were superb and. You know, my son's uh, studying in Halifax, and he's got season tickets to the to the Wanderers, and he plays oh, for cool. his university team. Yeah, Peter, Peter was there as well. Guy. Well, he he said it was fan, fantastic. Really, he had a great great time at their home opener. So I think they're they're doing things well. So I wouldn't second guess them, but it does sound a bit head in the sand to say we're not going to be a feeder for MLS. I mean, maybe you're not going to create your league that way around that concept, right. but if you have a Ryan Telfer who scores the first goal, starts playing really well, he's on loan from TFC, mm. TFC has no wingers. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes sense to recall him. Right. I mean, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. So um, I, I think... You know, whether they want to or not, there will be a bit of an aspect of their best players, um, uh, particularly if they're younger and, and improving, are going to be ripe for Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver right. to, to play. Well, if nobody comes up on CPL, we'll just re-sign Dominic Adour and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he was fun when he cut his hair in the shape of a Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we, we talked a little bit about... about making MLS and Toronto a destination. Um, you said Toronto is not a globally recognized club, and that's true. That That's absolutely true. But I just think of Wolves last year. Um, this year, doing extremely well in the English Premier League. They, they came through the championship playoff, and uh, they made themselves quite a formidable, formidable outfit. And they're not an, um, exactly world-renowned. They might be now because half their squad's from Portugal. But uh, <laughs> that recruitment drive in the summer to get these Portuguese players, like you were saying, you know, fish where there's fish. So 
how much how much do you think having internationally recognized superstars in the league helps with that because i'm sure for those players in portugal they look at wolves and they're like they're looking at their agents like really who are wolves and then the agent says they're in the english premier league oh okay sure you know if we build up the size of the mls through recruiting like the likes of Zlatan, Rooney, etc. Would that help Toronto land some of these players that we're trying to land? Well, I think, I mean, I think Toronto has some, some cachet and, uh, you know, going back to the earlier discussion, we, we have top, top level facilities. That's my understanding from what I read yeah. of, of what the players say, you know, our pitch and our practice facilities in particular are, as good as anywhere in the world. I mean, we're not obviously not Manchester United or Barcelona, but we we are top, top, top. So we have uh, something to show them. There, we do have a reputation for the supporters being passionate and therefore it being a fun and great place yeah. to play. And I think, yes, there's a certain cachet when you get a Ibrahimovic or or a Rooney. And I, by the way, I really admire the fact Rooney is playing yes. hard. He's, he, oh, he is, yeah. It's really impressed me with his with his work rate and his results, but I think with them there is a, still a bit of that. It's a retirement league. Mm. When you get a Juvinko in his prime, and uh, uh, he does well and has fun and enjoys it, and you've got somebody who goes from the fringes of the Italian national team to being a real star and being happy, I think that's when you got a story to tell, and when the agents will be talking to the right kind of players, saying, you know what. And I, this looks to me like what happened with Paz, right? He's doing okay in Belgium, but he comes here for more money and he might be the face of the team in the future the way Gio is. I Personally, I don't think he, that's kind of his personality, but it doesn't matter. I think that story can can be told. And, the you know, Wolves proves my point a bit. You know, you, you fish where you know where the mm-hmm. fish are. And that's what Wolves did. I mean, it's it's, you know, it's sort of like the – you know, Portuguese national second team yes. almost. <laughs> Absolutely. Some real talents though. So, oh yeah, they're beautiful yeah. to watch. I mean, I, I think uh, it'll be a tough game uh, next week. But um, uh, so Toronto, you know, if they manage to focus on these places where they're known and people know the stories and they know about Pozuelo and they know about Javinko and they know about some other successes and maybe they know about Benoit Cheru, yeah. Um I think that's the story that we can tell and will become a destination. Uh, by the way, apropos nothing, I go to London fairly often for, for my current work. And I, uh, uh, on the way home to the hotel, was picking up some late night food. And I had my TFC scarf on. And a guy came in and said, uh, Is that an MLS team? I said, Yeah, it's Toronto. And he said, I'm going to be coaching a youth team in Atlanta next oh. year. Oh, that's and, cool. And the people in this um, uh, takeaway all started talking about Atlanta United. Wow. <laughs> I was completely floored. So yeah. there is there is a, a maybe a hint of the beginning of some recognition that that the league's getting. I wouldn't want to go too far, but it, it you know I was really amazed that they were all talking articulately about MLS and you know it wasn't Toronto's year. This was last year in Atlanta and. You know, pretty pretty impressive so david do you have any season predictions do you have any uh you know crystal ball wisdom that might happen this season we're not going to get a winger before the trade uh or whatever you call transfer it window. the uh the window transfer window closes mm-hmm. 
there's a prediction. There we go. Uh, I'm pretty safe on that one, I think. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, the team as constituted is unbalanced. Played well against Orlando. I like a lot of the players, um, but it's unbalanced. And if we um, don't solve that problem by getting a winger and probably one more central defender, at least one winger, uh, I, th- I think we're going to struggle. Um, I, we've got a playoff cal- caliber team from my perspective, but without some pace and width, um, their teams will know how to defend us and will depend entirely on moments of brilliance and they're not going to happen every Who's game. Who's our best defender right now? And this is a bit of a loaded question because I have a, a, a particular <laughs> agenda against one of them, but um, who do you think is our best and perhaps our worst defender? Well, I, I actually don't think that's an easy question to ask because are, they've all been yes, terrible, thank you. but it's thank not. You. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. It's not entirely their fault because the I, I you know, I, I don't think the team has been playing very good team defense, no. and they've been making some some mistakes, um, not being close enough. Um, you know, Steve Caldwell talks about Michael Bradley starting too deep, and I, I think he's on to something there because it invites the other team on, and when there's uh, you know, you, the passes are longer and when they're intercepted, you get quick yeah. counters. But uh, I don't think anybody's distinguished themselves. Maybe Mavinga had a pretty good game against Orlando. Mm-hmm. And with, beside the right person, I think Mavinga's fantastic. But he needs a stable stay-at-home um, and apparently needs somebody who, who's telling everybody what to do and organizing yeah. the back line <laughs> beside him yeah, as well. We, we've, we've noted a few times that Simon and Mavinga don't speak at all they they seem to have no sense of where they are in relation to the other and it makes for some very disastrous defensive plays but yeah no the the quote the quote about uh bradley starting a bit too deep that that's an interesting one i'd, I'd not th- thought about that because if you have him too deep then the midfield gets destabilized and then they can just rip rip that apart and then suddenly our defense is stretched and then the disastrous plays almost become a certainty in trying to deal with that that's Caldwell's argument, and I hadn't thought of it myself, but watching the game with that in mind, you really mm. notice it. And against Orlando, Bradley, not all the time, but part of the time, was somewhat higher up the pitch. And it also means that Pozuelo comes deeper right. as well. So you, um, But he, it was very, it was really helpful commentary for me to hear because it gave kind of a new strategic insight to, to the match. And I do think there's some some problems there as well. And, you know, uh, poor Bono hasn't quite been himself either. So you, you let in a bad goal every couple of games. That doesn't help the no, defense either. Do you think he's uh, used up all of his goodwill now since 2017? Should he be benched for good? Well, I don't think he should be benched for good. I think he's a very good young keeper, but he does need to, he needs to, in my view, and I, I'm, I'm a striker. So, and I come from the era when, uh, it was perfectly acceptable to run into a goal goalkeeper as long as the ball went in the net. So it's a different era for me. But um, the uh, I think he's lost some confidence and his distribution's terrible. And you see the loss of confidence, particularly on balls into the box. He often doesn't come out even to the six yard box. Yeah. And I I do think he needs a chance to get his confidence back. When he was confident, he was playing really well although still had weak distribution yeah. and so for me it's an issue of confidence not an issue of of quality but maybe a little bit of time uh, 
working without any pressure would uh, would help. Yeah, you, you just you just can't seem to do the basics right at the moment, and that that's very worrying for a keeper. I think you remember uh, Loris Karius as well. Just after his uh, his Champions League blunder, arguably he was concussed at the time. The jury's still out on that, I think. Um, but then in preseason, he just flapped a, a very basic shot from a Tranmere Rovers winger that had no right to go in, but it did. Um, and then the, just that game against Minnesota, which I was there for, just it was a simple come out your box and clear it, and he missed the ball and. That, that, that to me says there's, there's deep, deeper issues than confidence there. I think perhaps he's overthinking his place. Perhaps he's just, maybe just needs some time out. Maybe the, the pressure of the fans saying this, that and the other and the media has gotten to him. Maybe, we, maybe he listens to us and he just hears us uh, slating him every podcast, every, <laughs> every match that he plays in. But uh, promising signs from Westbrook so far, don't you think? Yes, they had a funny exchange on uh, the Red Patch Boys site. Somebody was uh, suggesting they needed a a nickname for him and somebody said what about iceberg and somebody else okay, said well what about yeah. mi- mixing that with his last name and calling him westberg uh, <laughs> there you go <laughs> i i'm a jury's out on him for me but uh i do like the way he commands the box and um uh his distribution's unbelievable i, I was paying it's attention to that last game he, he kicked the ball I, I watched him yell um jay you could see him on TV. There was close up on him. You could see him yell Jay and he kicked the ball right to Chapman. Mm. And Chapman was just across uh, the halfway. Yeah. Like that's pretty damn good distribution. I'm not entirely sh- convinced yet about his shot stopping, which is sort of a basic skill, but you know, he's small sample size. So yeah, we'll see. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite player on the team right now? Jonathan is oh, really Peter. You got a comment on that? Good call. No, you know what? He's a local Toronto kid, so uh, Brampton boy, actually. So, um, you know, I've, I've got no gripes about that. I have gripes about his playing style sometimes, but I mean, you know, as long as he's putting the ball in the net, I can't really complain about it. Peter, people are so hard on him. I think it's his because he's Canadian. He's, he's got I think incredible. that's exactly what it is, yeah. You know, two years ago, he overthought things and would take two touches when one was enough and often missed chances, but yeah. he... He's broken through that now. He creates. I mean, he's not Pozuelo, but he creates. If they could have him a bit more centrally, um, like if you had some wingers and and he and Bradley were beside each other and Pozuelo ahead of them, for example, and he was used more in link-up play, he, he would be uh, fantastic. I, I had a, a sweet experience um, with his uh, mom, actually, in the 5-0 the game in away at... Um, uh, New York City FC in the playoffs in 2016. Mm-hmm. I, I was there with, with my son, and at halftime I went to get a beer, and I'm in line, and um, uh, there's a woman ahead of me in line, and the line's long, so the second half starts, and Azorio scores. And the woman ahead of me goes, I just missed my son score a goal. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so I said, Mrs. Azorio, um, I'm really sorry. He's my favorite player. May I buy you a beer? And she said a water would be fine. Thank you. So, Oh, that's nice. There, there's my personal brush with uh, greatness. There you go. <laughs> and uh, $7 later for a bottle of water. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It better be good. All right, we are running out of time here, so I just wanted to quickly pick your brain on this last uh, topic that we've discussed a lot about on this podcast. It's to do with the fans. Um, so... 
your your little uh, story about Atlanta United, I think the one thing that's traveled extremely well across the way, especially some of my friends in England as well, is their 73,000 strong stadium and the, the, the wall of noise that greets these players and go, comes through on TV. And a lot has been written about that. And Toronto FC were sort of the, the original, um, you know, supporters club, I suppose. Like with Toronto FC and Atlanta United FC kind of paving the way for, for supporter fan, the standards for supportive fan culture, I wanted to talk a little bit about the state of our fans right now, the, specifically with um, this this whole thing about the legend TFC. The, it's one song; it's it's sort of a folksy song. Uh, the words are shown up on on the board on the on the big jumbotron before the game. Do you feel like that's a bit of a forced move to get people to be more unified after the terrible season that we just had, or is it done out of? It, it, does it come from a play a, a well intentioned, well meaning place? From the higher ups, should supporter culture be be managed by the higher ups either? No, well, that's exactly the the issue. Um, supporters are our own culture. It's what makes us different. You know, we don't need the big hands coming out and saying clap like you get at uh, the Air Canada Centre or Scotia Bank or whatever <laughs> they call it these this week. Um, I, I, for me, you know, the first game at, at BMO, the very first game uh, before DKO scored. Um, I'm up in the the in uh, two two twenty five, and our section people stamped so hard the bolts fell out. Oh, wow! <laughs> they didn't tell us that till after. Okay. <laughs> oh, and by the way, they also sold all the beer. So the next the next game they ordered double, and they sold all of that. So the third game they had to order double double <laughs> beer, but the bolts didn't fall out again. But that's how the atmosphere was the first couple of seasons, even. Uh, on on the west side, it wasn't just the south end, and we made the team. People only thought it would get ten or twelve thousand people, mm. and they had to cap season's ticket sales because we made it as supporters. Right. So yeah. I think anything that takes away, even if it's a nice thing, and I kind of like Legend TFC, but that takes away from us making it is wrong. Like the last few games, the singers sung the whole national anthem. Yeah, and yeah, I don't understand that. I don't either. And it was so beautiful when we just sing it. It is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So I, I think, you know, let us as supporters, we'll create the atmosphere. We know how to do it. It's fun for us. Um, and and uh, it'll be better for the players and everybody else if you don't try to make it kind of fake and plastic. Yeah. There is an argument to be made, though especially towards the tail end of last season, that our fan base was extremely fractured. The South End in particular, you know, they had like every single different section was chanting something else. And it was just this weird discombobulated cacophony of noise or not a whole lot of noise, but just a, a wall of something. It wasn't harmonious. It wasn't pleasant to look at. It wasn't pleasant to hear. And then Legend TFC comes in and everybody's singing, marching to the same uh, drum beat. So... Do you think do, could could the Legend TFC be something that these groups now genuinely adopt as as something that for themselves, despite all the 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 fracturing and 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 the history that that we've had with these supporters group kind of playing off each other a little bit? I, I think you're right about last year. It did get a bit weird. I mean, it was a weird year, you know, and we're seeing with 
uh, Kansas City, how many injuries you get when you have a deep mm. Champions League run. So it, it was a very strange year in lots and lots of ways. It didn't feel quite right towards the end of the year. And, you know, the, the they locked out a lot of the employees. Um, so I, I actually I, uh, know those employees. And I, I didn't want to cross the picket line. So I unfortunately missed quite a few of the games. But judging from TV, it just felt weird. So I get that. And... Is it the end of the earth if Legend TFC works and makes people more harmonious? No. But the more things we have that the the suits, just let us be, let us create our own things. You know, the best thing they could do, frankly, is build a really nice Canadian Football League team, stadium for the Argos, move them to that stadium, build a north end that keeps the sound mm. in that's good, um, and, uh, you know, we, we as supporters would take care of the rest because we, we know what yeah, to do. Absolutely. Do you think there's uh, a disconnect between MLSE and, and fans, especially TFC fans? Because I don't think this level of support, this level of dedication is seen across the other franchises. Well, I, that's, it's a really good question. And, and I guess I just, I have to say, I don't know. I mean, there's an instinct in a corporation like MLSE to do the corporate things. They know what works at, you know, if you say clap at six minutes and 15 seconds of the third period in a Toronto Maple Leafs game, your beer sales go up by 2% yeah. right, or whatever. They know all this stuff. So it's hard for them not to apply it to, to TFC. But, um, but I hope that people like Bill Manning, who is a soccer guy, are able to push back against you know, the institutional culture and say, you know what, it is different there. You got to treat the people different. Let them be the entertainment and they won't let you down. Of course. Um, any closing comments for the team or for our listeners? Well, I, I you know, the team's been a, a roaring success the first few years, not on the field, um, um, but certainly in the stands. And it's just, so wonderful now we get to have debates about which great player we're bringing in. You know, a Pozuelo would have been inconceivable uh, seven years ago because we would have screwed it up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's been such a fantastic journey. In a way, the, the difficult times were, were necessary. And for me, it's been a privilege to have been part of it at inception and to be there in the stands almost every single game almost every great moment of the club bar one it's just been fantastic and i know all the supporters around me feel feel the same way we've got mostly the same people since the beginning some of them got married and had kids and they're still there and to me that's that's what football's all about it's it's about being there with with uh the people every second saturday 3 p.m absolutely kickoff it's it's brilliant and there's nothing else like it, it. certainly isn't non-toronto at least um, I think that's all we have for you, right, Peter? Yep. Um, I just wanted to say thank you, David, um, not only for coming on the podcast today, but also for giving the city of Toronto and Canada as a whole uh, what it needed the most. Um, you were instrumental in making our dreams come true and having a unifying flag to fly in a city of immigrants looking for common ground. Uh, you created what some of us consider a place of worship at BMO Field. Uh, and for that, we'll be forever grateful. Um, can we get a come on you Reds? Come on you Reds! <laughs> there we go. Perfect. <laughs> uh, that is it. That is our time with David Miller for this very special episode of the Starring Eleven podcast. Thank you again, once again, David, for coming on. 
from myself, Cengiz Khan, and from Peter Robinson. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast over at Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you get your spot- podcast media. And uh, we'll see you next time.